case. Pope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Pope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue sick, virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Hello and welcome to the second Hope Not Hate podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us again. We hope you enjoyed the first one. Uh, thank you to all those people who have subscribed. It's very kind. If you haven't uh, yet, please do. Please tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your pets. We need all the subscribers we can get. Um, thanks for coming back. My name is Joe Mulhall. I'm Senior Researcher at Hope Not Hate. And joining me today is Sophia. Uh, I'm the journalist. <laughs> right, yeah. And also joining us is Martin. I'm the internet. He's the internet. Martin with two A's, he always, uh, he always begs me to say. Um, so as just with last week, we've got uh, some really interesting stuff coming up for you today. We're going to be covering three topics that have been in the news in the last week uh, from various angles. Then we've got a fascinating interview uh, with one of our colleagues, Matthew Collins, has done uh, to some researchers at the Anne Frank in, uh, House in Amsterdam about anti-Semitism in football. So stay tuned for that. And we've got some interesting, we'll be reading out some great hate mail we've received recently as well, which should be good fun. Now, I want to kick things off today by talking about something that's made me very, very upset, which is Morrissey, uh, who has been one of my musical heroes. I've loved him for years, loved the Smiths, and like some of, I'm even one of those people that doesn't mind his recent solo albums. Um, and yet, in the last week, he has come out with some absolutely shocking comments. Essentially, he's come out and supported a far-right party. He's come out and called for support for a party called For Britain, which is run by an anti-Muslim activist called Anne-Marie Waters. Uh, he's come out, I'll, I'll read you some of the things he said, just so you don't think I'm making it up. He says, please give them a chance, listen to them. Do not be influenced by the tyrannies of the mainstream media who will tell you that for Britain are racist or fascist. Please believe me, they are the very opposite. Now, please believe me, they are not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've been looking at Anne-Marie Waters for a very long time. We've been looking at her when she was back in Pegida, uh, when she was doing some, she's been a long-standing anti-Muslim activist and for Britain has got some really, really nasty characters in it. Um, Why do you think he said this? Well, anyone who's been watching Morrissey for the last few years has seen him some of the mad stuff he's been saying. Uh, so you're saying it's a long-term problem? He has been getting increasingly potty. But um, what I mean, this ta- this really takes the biscuit. I mean, he's I mean he talked. I mean, some of the rhetoric in this. I think it was an interview he gave on his website, and some of the rhetoric on it was. I mean, it is utterly indistinguishable from the far right. He talks about the loony left. He talks about the mainstream media. I mean, very conspiratorial stuff. What's worrying is for someone like him to come out and support what is essentially a tiny marginal far right party. Uh, it could normalise it, it could make people think that it's acceptable, when of course in many ways it's absolutely not. And how much of a pull do you think he has? Hopefully, like well... How big is his fan base? Well, thankfully his last album was absolute rubbish, so <laughs> my hoping is, is that he is um, less influential now than he would have been a few years ago. Um, but for Britain, for anyone who, who doesn't know about them, I mean, Amory Waters was one of the co-leaders of Pegida with Tommy Robinson from the EDL. Um, what she, about people who don't know what Pegida is? Oh, sorry. Pegida was a anti-Muslim street movement that started in Dresden in Germany. Uh, it spread across Europe and it was launched in the UK with Amory Waters as the leader. Um, thankfully, it didn't kind of work out over here. They had a couple of meetings in Birmingham, sorry, a couple of marches in Birmingham, which were kind of ended up being rather comical affairs. But, um, it sort of died in the car park, didn't it? It literally did. Yeah, that sounds like a Morrissey lyric. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so the question I've got for you two, actually, is can we detach... Has this ruined... I don't know if either of you are Morrissey fans, by the way, mm, or Smith's not fans. Not really. I had to Google him. 
I'm ambivalent towards the Smith, but yeah, the question remains. Can you detach the art from the artist? Is it okay to still listen to Morrissey? Is it okay? And I've got a few other examples of horrible people. Um, I mean, it's a very grey area, isn't it? Like, how, where is your red line? And people's red lines are going to be different. I'm going to jump in with my red line at the moment, and that's something else that's come out this week, which is Kanye West and his defense of a far-right, uh, I'm sorry, not a far-right, a very conservative uh, political commentator. I, I believe she uh, has a show on Fox News. Uh, Candace, I don't remember her full name. But anyway, Kanye is a, a huge uh, musical idol of mine, uh, have always loved his music, and I think he's a really, really great example of separate, separating the art from the artist for many different reasons. I think he he himself, as a as an artist, as a, I'd go as far as to call him a genius. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, come on! <laughs> I've, hijacked, I've hijacked the podcast to work on yet. So you he's, separate he, his uh, political leanings and his... Uh, not necessarily his polit- just his political leanings. He's been known to go off on rants at concerts, on Twitter. He just reactivated his Twitter a week ago, mainly to plug some new albums. But that will be a stream of consciousness directly from his brain, which I think the, these are, there are tendencies that, that come with artists, which is they're highly emotional, they're, they wear their hearts on their sleeves with regards to how they feel about things. And he's, he says some highly questionable things throughout time, as, as many people are. And I think, yeah, I, I, I kind of like the, the, the sentiment that the individual can draw their, their red line. I also love the line that people always quote back when someone who's in the public eye does something bad, which is, never meet your heroes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I start off from the position saying, right, now actually, if someone does something like this, I care about this deeply, that's that, that's the end of this for me. And then I started looking and having a little think about it. And realise there's a huge amount of art created by horrific people in all fields. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Lennon, he's, you know, famously engaged in domestic abuse. Phil Spector, the great producer, a murderer. I mean, do I never listen to any of the albums he produced Weinstein. again? Weinstein. Mel Gibson. Oh, the, Mel Gibson. Oh, God. I mean, get right, well, he's made some terrible films as well. But, um, but he's made some good ones, too. Like? Uh, the last one, the one about the the soldier who doesn't want to fight. Um... Hacksaw Ridge, universally yes. acclaimed at the Oscars. Yeah, he, no, he's been no, welcomed yeah. back into the fold. And this is the thing, I think, is there's a separation between, let's say, what we're talking about, which is, as individuals, can we separate these things out, versus um, the consensus. And in our social media age, you know, the consensus is decided online by hmm. who can shout the loudest. You know, I was listening to something on the radio a couple of days ago, about, um, we're going to go a bit off topic here, but diversity on stage. There's a, recently been uh, accusations of whitewashing a production of West Side Story where the lead role of Maria was cast, uh, a white woman was cast in the role. And social media went nuts over it and she ended up uh, stepping out of the role. And there was a question about, like, is this a good thing? Mm-hmm. I, is this a bad thing? Um, I kind of fall in between both categories. You know, I think, and there was a great interview by someone who, who represents an advocacy group who are ad- who are calling for greater diversity in the theatre, and she was like, "Social media is our tool for success." Yes, right. but the public is not always right. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that's very true. Actually, I watched a documentary. Well, in preparation for this, I watched a documentary by Stephen Fry called "Wagner and Me." I don't know if you've seen it. So Stephen Fry is Jewish. He lost family in the Holocaust, and he's an enormous Wagner fan. Now, Wagner is kind of an infamous anti-Semite, hugely influential on the Nazi party. Hitler was an enormous fan. Uh, Wagner's family later on supported the Nazis. And yet he asked this question, can he be this huge Wagner fan while still knowing about all this history? And he comes to the conclusion that it is possible. Um, it is possible that it's, uh, that it's not a contradiction, it's acceptable, because the art was okay in and of itself, despite the man's views were terrible, but the art was okay. So picking and choosing aspects that you can appreciate 
and rejecting the rest. Yeah, I guess so. And actually, the, <clears throat> he, he interviews this Holocaust survivor who played cello in, in Auschwitz uh, for the guards. And she talks around and she goes, they took everything else from us. They can't take the music as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they took it, they can't take it. And it's a really heartfelt interview where she turns around. And, but she, what she actually says was, uh, the Holocaust survivor turns around and says, um, do you have to listen to it live? Do you have to go to Bayreuth, which is Wagner's famous theatre? Can't you just listen to it on the record? Why do you have to go there and do it? So like, where, where you listen to it can have an influence as well. There's um, no easy answer, is there? No, there's not. I tell you what, though, if you've got, um, <laughs> sounds like a radio host. Yeah, if you've got, if what do you think? Get get in touch on Twitter and let us know who's the most odious musician you like. So, I um, <laughs> final question for Joe is: Will you still be listening to Morrissey? I'll still listen to the Smiths and some of his early solo albums, but I will be willing to jettison his recent work because <laughs> I'm that moral. Is that because you're moral? Because they're bad? <laughs> yeah, because they're bad. Um, yeah, that's like it's like when you give up food that you don't actually like. Um, <laughs> And just uh, the, the framing for all of this was, uh, I think the timing of his statement is, is hinged around the local election. So quick reminder to everybody, those are coming up next Thursday, 3rd of May. Uh, make sure you go out and vote. Yeah, and keep an, keep an eye on our um, website because we're going to have some really interesting stuff coming out about For Britain. So that'll be coming up. Next, uh, Sophia, what would you like to talk about this week? Uh, the Windrush scandal, which is still not over. It just seems to keep on getting stronger. So over the last two weeks, we've had stories emerging of a uh, a man who couldn't get cancer treatment because um, they suddenly the NHS told him he wasn't British, he couldn't get benefits. Uh, another story of a son who went out of uh, the country and then couldn't return for his mother's funeral. Uh, a man who was sacked from his job, denied benefits and cast an illegal immigrant for having no passport. And he died on the street. So all these people were actually Commonwealth citizens that came into the country in the 60s and the 70s as British people. They were told they were British. But they didn't uh, do the paperwork. They didn't get the passport. And now, because of the tightening immigration rules, are in a lot of trouble in, in, in basically living their lives. And the thing that really hit me with this is how it emerged that the government knew that the hostile policies it was creating around immigration was going to affect um, the Windrush generation. Immigration rules in this country have been tightening since the 60s, but it was in 2014 and 2016 that the Immigration Acts those immigration rules are the reason why the Windrush generation are having so many problems now. And they were warned then that this is what's going to happen. And they did. They just went on. They didn't provide any anything to help them. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, the sort of practical changes made to immigration enforcement, uh, both under Theresa May in her longest serving stint in the Home Office and taken on by Amber Rudd. That's, that's what we're really seeing. Like, I think, like you said, the actual practices and and feelings towards uh, immigrants of the Windrush generation and subsequently haven't necessarily hardened themselves. I think we've always seen a hostile atmosphere, um, especially in certain parts of the political spectrum. Um, but yeah, it's this, it's this real, really poorly thought through application of this that's resulted I mean, in mass deportations. I believe the number that they were quoting that would be affected was 57,000. 57,000 57, wow, yeah. that could be potentially affected Commonwealth citizen. And I mean, you say poorly thought through, but I'm wondering how much is intentional. 
Like yeah, and how I mean, much was it, you know, creating hostile policy? But what has been really positive, and I think that's what the government didn't expect, was the huge amount of support for this Windrush generation. I mean, the Daily Mail has been uh, has been re- writing positive stories about them. Like when you reach the Daily Mail, you know the whole country um, is behind them. And I mean, we've had quite a bit of. Uh, I mean, immigration is a very divisive issue still. So it was heartening to see everyone rallying around British immigrants. Excuse me if I'm a little suspicious, because we've seen people further to the right than the Daily Mail, including our good friends over at Leave.eu, back the Windrush generation. And I'm fascinated as <laughs> yeah. to like how the far, how the right, the far right is, is well, I guess maybe there's a separation again. Now the, the Windrush generation are all of a sudden seen as good immigrants. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think absolutely they've divided it between good and bad immigrants. That's a very good point, you know, who is worthy and who is not. I mean, experts do say that this is going to blow wider than just the Windrush immigration. It's going to other people uh, who weren't Commonwealth, but, for example, who have been here for a long time. And the stories are also emerging. And I mean, the Windrush generation, everyone is focused on it and there are horrible stories coming out. But there are a lot of horrible stories of the non-Windrush generation too, mm-hmm. like other immigrants uh, having the same issues with from cancer treatments to losing their jobs and other things. I mean, it, what's so true, I mean, it's absolutely infuriating. I'm glad there's been such a backlash. I mean, what's so heartbreaking is, is that generation of immigrants struggled so hard. I mean, if you look at their reaction to their arrival in the late 40s and 50s, the way society reacted, the way government reacted, it was absolutely heartbreaking then. If anyone's not read it, there's a book called Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon, and it talks about his experiences arriving in London. And it's absolutely heartbreaking what that community had to go through. And then in the 50s, you had the Notting Hill riots again. Racism. Every general, every, every, te- you know, it just, it just kept and- happening. And then for this to happen again, to be treated like this, is just utterly infuriating. I can't even, I can't even imagine what that community feel like now. And the worst bit, or one of the worst bits, is that these were people welcomed by the British government to rebuild Britain. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, we're going to move on now. Martin, what would you like to discuss this week? Um, I'd love to discuss um, a, a very particular UKIP candidate who is currently standing in the local elections. He's also currently an MEP. His name is Bill Etheridge, um, and he's standing for re-election in Dudley Council. Mm-hmm. Bill Etheridge, for uh, any uh, long-standing Hope Not Hate supporters, will be a, a familiar name. Uh, he's been around for a while, um, a, f- a very colourful UKIP figure. Uh, he stood in 2015 in the general election in Dudley North, the same area. Um, we ran a, a really great campaign, uh, which he ended up finishing third. Why He's... do we dislike him? Oh, yeah, let, let's get started. How long have you got? I've got a long list here, <laughs> in fact. He was forced out of the Conservative Party after he posed with a gollywog. Um, you can see that leaflet, I think. He actually posted it, that picture of himself recently on his own Facebook page. Uh, after we've sort, of, we've sort of been out there campaigning against him again for the locals, he's very, very proud of this picture. And he posted it back on his Facebook page, thanking us to help him get more votes. Um, he's also given his support to a group called the White Pendragons. You may or may not have heard of them. They very recently tried to citizens arrest uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan. Um, <laughs> and were advocating for the reintroduction of Magna Carta, I believe. They're pretty out there. Um, they also like they, they you know they've got they're, they're full of the anti the, the classic anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, Bill Etheridge, big fan of those. Uh, he's also supported banning Muslim clothing and halal foods. Uh, he's warned that multiculturalism would lead to the infamous rivers of blood, as we discussed last time. Um, you know Powell's famous speech. Um, and one of his most shocking recent actions is to invite uh, someone from the German far-right party, the AFD, to address a local UKIP meeting in his area. Need I say more? 
Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, yeah, the AFD thing is pretty shocking, really. I mean, some of their anti-Muslim stuff that's been happening in Germany is, is really, really scary. We actually did a big report on the AFD in the run-up to the German elections last year, um, which I believe is still on our website, which covers who they are and goes through their history a little bit. I mean, they're a relatively new populist radical right party. Are they um, worse than the far right in this country? Oh, it's difficult. How do you compare those? Are they worse? Um, or the same? They're, they're, they're more worrying in the sense they're more successful. You know, I mean, they, they actually they did very well at the elections last year. Um, they entered Parliament in Germany. So in that sense, they've been much more successful. Um, and they've got an explicitly, increasingly explicit anti-Muslim uh, messaging. We've seen links... It's very with, popular these days, isn't it? <laughs> it seems to be very popular all over Europe, yeah, unfortunately. And that's where Bill sits in terms of the UKIP spectrum. Um, he uh, Since Nigel Farage resigned um, for, as leader of the party in 2016, he's thrown his hat in the ring to become leader four times. Uh, he and failed it. four times? He hasn't technically failed four times because he's withdrawn a few times, but his platform is really on that's the... That's failure, that is. That is <laughs> failure. We uh, pay for results. His platform is really at the uh, is anti-Muslim end of the UKIP spectrum, like uh, our good friend Anne-Marie Waters, who's now left and joined for Britain. Hope Not Hate is running a campaign, a very targeted local campaign, uh, to oust him from Dudley Council. You know, he's still standing as an MEP, but we, we don't think that someone with his sorts of values, of course, belongs on a, on a local council. This is why local council elections are important. Um, and we're out there... To we... get all the racists off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Um well, I mean, we've got the, we're going to have a big campaign going on around Bill Etheridge. Um, we've got some absolutely belting leaflets that are really funny, uh, but also very true, sadly enough. So um, that'll be a nice big campaign. So if you are anywhere in the Midlands, please do get in touch with us. We'd love to kind of get you along to, to help out with that. Uh, we'd love to get you involved. If you've got any free time to spare and you're based in the, in the West Midlands, uh, get in touch with us. We're going to put the link to sign up to the campaign in the episode notes. So that brings us on to today's interview. Uh, today's interview is a fascinating one. It's done by our colleague Matthew Collins, who's head of research. I'm sure many of you will know Matthew. Uh, if you don't, check out, uh, he's got the Insiders blog on our website, and he'll also kill me if I don't plug his book, Hate My Life in the Far Right. So that's just for my own safety. Um, he went to Amsterdam to do a fascinating interview at the Anne Frank House um, to talk about anti-Semitism in football. Of course, it's a very apt interview. Uh, we did a Hope Not Hate special on anti-Semitism in football a few years ago around Poland and Ukraine with the Euros, but also with Russia coming up this summer in the World Cup. It's something we need to all be looking out for. So, um, yeah, let's uh, take a listen to the interview. Hi, this is Matthew Collins. I'm at Anne Frank House with Willem Wagner, and a uh, very handsome young gentleman whose name I can't pronounce. Johan Verhoeven. Johan Verhoeven. Uh, we're at Anne Frank House in Amsterdam and we're in the research department. And these two gentlemen I'm with are the experts on modern anti-Semitism in football. Could you just take us through what is the situation with anti-Semitism in football? Is it a growing problem? Is it a constant problem? It's a, uh, it's a problem with, uh, with many uh, different ways to look at it, for starters. Um, we, we did research on anti-Semitism in secondary education in, in 2013, only to find out that uh, about one-third of the teachers saw anti-Semitism um, happening in their classrooms in the past year, which was not big surprise but a big surprise was that more than half of them told us that uh, the anti-semitism that they watched happening in their classrooms was football related and 
at that moment we thought, okay, here's some problem we didn't see coming um, and where to start. Uh, and we thought, we thought, okay, we have to, to, to do uh, two things, uh, start uh, preventive uh, educational measures, starting to educate young people who are interested in football um, to, to, to take a stand against discriminatory uh, remarks related to football. But on the other hand, we have to go into the stadiums to get hold of uh, anti-Semitic chants, which are happening very often in Holland. And those chants are uh, related to a, a problem which uh, appears about the same what is happening around Tottenham Hotspur in, in England. Yeah. Um, we have a, a, a famous football club Ajax in Amsterdam which uh, is by the, 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 fan, the fans, the supporters um, named uh, a Jewish club yeah. or well the, the, the supporters call themselves Super Jews. Yeah. Uh, sing on it, uh, wear badges of the Star of David, and so on and so on. And uh, in, in, in reaction to that, you see that that uh, hostile fan bases of other clubs, uh, especially those in, in Rotterdam, uh, Die Haag, and Utrecht, um, start to uh, use chants uh, targeting yeah. the so-called Jews, and sometimes they are not that bad chance, even funny chance, but as often you also see very nasty anti-Semitic Holocaust denying uh, chance on the, on the stands. Um, and we started to cooperate with, with, with different uh, football clubs and, and uh, supporters, coaches, um, fan coaches to, to try and tackle this problem. One of the uh, things you were talking about was each Dutch club has a Jewish history. Is that correct? Well, you can find, of course, um, before the Second World War, we had uh, uh, we had uh, uh, loads of Jewish communities spread over the country, yeah. which have had, of course, being part of Dutch society, uh, relations with with the cities, the towns they lived in, and the football clubs. Uh, um, related to those to those cities and, 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 and towns. So yes, every town and city and club has some Jewish background. As you know, I've been to CIX with you a few times. My endearing memory of Ajax supporters was when the EDL came to Amsterdam that time, that they, they all came out, didn't they? The assumption being, I think, that some EDL supporters thought that because Ajax had a sort of Jewish culture or Jewish history, that some, for some reason, its supporters would uh, get behind Islamophobia. And I, I remember when 500 Ajax fans disembarked from their train out in, out in the countryside to demonstrate against the EDL, and they stole the EDL's flag and, and things like that. So I've, I've, always, I've always had a soft spot for Ajax. Okay. <laughs> and plus I get the free ticket, right? So, <laughs> because obviously you work out, obviously, Anne Frank House, there was recently somewhat of a horror story uh, in Italian football when the Italian fans were wearing the, the Anne Frank sticker. What sort of impact did that have here? Obviously, the whole world was talking about it. You know, anyone in the football world was talking about this outrageous behaviour. 
of course, the immediate question that arose, should we do something in Italy with yeah. this and with our knowledge on, on how, how, we, how we try to tackle these problems in Holland yeah. within an educational context? Is, is that a possibility in Italy also? For starters, we saw that in Italy itself there was a huge uh, reaction to this incident where in uh, all the Premier League clubs uh, showed their, um, their sympathy with the, um, getting rid of anti-Semitism, getting yeah. rid of anti-Semitic symbols. Uh, part of the diary of Anne Frank were read in, in different stadiums oh, really? in the weekend after um, when... when the, the teams played the, in advance of, of uh, entering the pitch. They they wore T-shirts with statements on this oh, topic, really? yeah. so that that worked fine. But then again, we we had to think on: is there some educational approach for this this problem in Italy? Um, and knowing the culture and history of Lazio and Lazio fans, we, we actually thought, well, no, this is too far gone. There has to change some, some, some things. In the UK, you've done some work with Chelsea? Um, yes, we, uh, Chelsea was very interested in the project we, we do in Holland. Um, and we informed them um, on, on, on the two projects. And they were very inspired, I, I guess, because uh, the project they, they just started up has some, some pretty much resemblance to, to the work we are doing here with the different clubs. I heard you got invited to dinner with Mr. Abramovich. Yes, and I, I declined. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it would have been a good dinner. Uh, our director, Ronald... Uh, Ronald went instead. Went yeah. There, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he went instead. And uh, he really liked it. All the, I mean, he was really... He was making friends with the chairman of, I think it was Bournemouth, um, or was that a club? I'm not sure, but it was. It was. I think it was Watford. It was, Watford beat Chelsea. Oh, could that. be. Was it Watford be. beat Chelsea? That yeah, I was think. at home three 0 Yeah, and uh, and uh, not a good day out. Yeah, and then the chair <laughs> and Ronald told us that, that when he walked walked away, that the, cha- the chairman, the last thing he heard was the chairman screaming to him saying, "We won, we won! It's incredible!" <laughs> yeah. It's not an exclusive problem with Chelsea. I think every time someone plays Tottenham Hotspur, there's always uh, inappropriate comments and, yeah. and charting. And we have this debate in England about the Tottenham fans call themselves the Yid Army. Yeah. And so some, some people say that's a reappropriation of the word, or yeah. some people say it, it therefore allows people to use that chant against them. And it's been a, a really, really ongoing uh, problem and, and dis- yeah, a discussion people have had in the Jewish community or in the football community. Or ordinary football fans have had that discussion about the use of certain words or, or the imagery, imagery that goes with the Jewish community. The interesting thing about Chelsea was that historically, recent historics, I guess, is that it, it, unfortunately for, for, for them, a small section of their supporters will be forever associated with the far right, yeah. the National Front in the 1970s and 80s, and then the Chelsea Headhunters and, and Combat 18. And so it was really interesting. Mr. Abramovich decided that you know Chelsea would take take the lead on anti-Semitism in football. It's been problematic. I think West Ham fans have also been pulled pulled up on it. The anti-Semitism that rears its head is it just something that just happens on a Saturday because it's football and it's Tottenham, or is it something more deep 
tape say tape. For Dutch context, I'm not yeah, talking about, context, about, yeah. about British context. It's very clear. We 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 did research among football supporters from the clubs uh, opposing Ajax, uh, yeah. where it is known that they uh, use anti-Semitic chants, and we. We did a lot of interviews with with uh, fans asking about the use of those anti-Semitic chants uh, and their general Jews, uh, views on Jews and, and Israel, things like that. And it appears that they are just in the middle of uh, st- statistics on anti-Semitic opinions with ordinary Dutch, uh, where anti-Semitic opinions are very, very low compared to other European countries or other Western countries. Uh, some two or three percent of the Dutch population uh, uh, can can be. If you ask them, uh, you see some some anti-Semitic views, and that's exactly the same among those football supporters. So you don't see any real anti-Semitic views between them. What is more, uh, the situation in Chelsea or with certain German clubs or other European clubs where there is an active uh, fan base related to right extremist clubs, uh, to right extremist organizations, that doesn't exist in Holland in 2018. There has been some liaisons going on in the 80s and 90s and it might happen the odd day that some some uh, some some, some per- yeah. yeah of course that there are some personal uh, involvements or that some groups of supporters uh, get involved uh, within uh, right wing demonstrations, but that's not on a on a structural base or and that doesn't uh, that isn't any explanation for the no. anti-Semitic chance. There's no political background at all because holland in the european context i guess for a while with hurt builders yeah would have probably have made itself a, somewhat of a name or unwanted reputation for islamophobia anti-muslim yeah. sentiment is builders a, a a busted flush now he came close or he he was the, he, you know was he, he went to be the prime minister or he went to you know he a stood busted what a busted flush that's an english is, expression is, old chap is he is he now is your toilet broken <laughs> is he was he was on weg naar glory and oh okay okay okay, okay. You, you never know but that that's not really football related i guess <laughs> but um, <laughs> i think in the last we, we had last month we had local elections in a lot of places in holland um, and uh, the freedom party of geert wilders participated in among about 30 different uh, towns and cities uh, where he based upon uh, national elections the year before yeah. could could pre- pre- predicate to, uh, to that 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 he would do well in those cities, and he didn't. In most of them, um, the electorate um, supported him below expecta- expectations, or very much below expectations. So but he, what he was the a reason? Busted flush. Right? Hmm? Huh? So he's a busted flush. At this moment, uh, you maybe. could say, but we we, yeah. we thought that before. Well, and the, and uh, the, the levels of Islamophobia. In the, in the Netherlands or are, are high challenging depends on your definition of Islamophobia and, yeah. and yeah. how do you measure it uh, we saw it um, when you when you look into the statistics of 
um, uh, people go to the police mm. and, and telling the police that that they have been uh, mistreated or uh, things like that uh, yeah. in an Islamophobic way. We saw a real rise in 2015, 2016, and after that, it went down. Uh, the statistics not too fast, but it went down. And of course, there, if you see the, uh, if you what, look into the the, the the statistics per month, you see a you saw a rise um, connected to two periods. One was uh, that there was a very a big rise visible in the statistics of anti-Islam statements and incidents. During the two Paris terror attacks, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Charlie Hebdo attack and yeah. the Bataclan attack, you saw it going up. And also, not so fast, but it was quite visible during the, the, the big debate in Europe on, on Syrian refugees coming yeah. here, yeah. which in uh, a lot of countries in Holland, but all uh, in Europe, but also in Holland, um, caused a very, very fierce, polarized uh, debate. Um, uh, partly also in local communities where, where um, asylum seekers, uh, re refugees uh, were, were planned to, to, to get shelter. Yeah. And after that uh, period of, of, of disc uh, fierce discussions on, on refugees, you saw the anti-Islamic incidents go down again and um, figures from 2000. 17 just appeared that shows the same image and 2018 of course we don't have any figures yet now can we talk about the work that uh, Anne Frank House does um, for people who, who come to uh, Amsterdam it's one of the top tourist attractions it's the uh, former home of Anne Frank the yeah. diarist the holocaust victim yeah it, I think it came out last week in the UK said quite a large number of people in the UK still were unsure about what the holocaust was yeah um, I've, I've, Amsterdam, the Netherlands is very, very blessed to have this centre and the work it does. I know the works even in the UK that uh, Anne Frank House contributes to in Holocaust education is very, is very important. Is is Anne Frank seen as you know like a Dutch icon because everyone knows Anne Frank? Her diary was translated into every language and it sold lots of books. But is she is she like the Dutch icon? Is she? Is she a central theme in Dutch education about, first of all, anti-Semitism and, and racism and anti-Nazism? For one, um, in, in the Dutch education system, yeah. um, it's, it's centrally organized by, by the government on what topics young people in secondary education should be educated yeah. at all times. And the Second World War and the, the Shoah, the Holocaust, are a part of our history that is obliged to be taught on for all students in secondary education um, um, on all levels. And so, when you finish your secondary education, everybody should know about um, the Second World War and, and what happened to the to the Jewish inhabitants of, of Holland. Um, and of course, Anne Frank and the diary of Anne Frank and the history of Anne Frank and her family and. Her, uh, are, are central in that the Dutch um, narrative about yes 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 um, because her story is iconic and is, is 
it can be used fairly easy to 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 show the complicated history of in a, in a personal story, which of course is is a very very powerful way of of, of to educate when you really yeah. try to 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 understand what what the history of six million people is. It's 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 hardly it's very hard to get that understandable yeah. way into your education. But if you can combine this history of the six million six million people with the history of one person, one school, then then then, yeah. then, it, then it, yeah, of course, it's education in an educational way. It works very good. And how long how long does it take if you do it properly? Is it an hour a bit? Yeah. Think so. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not, and it's not a waste. It's not a waste of time, is it? It's really something to see her, her room and and, and that kind of stuff. But the queues just happen all day. Yeah. And of course, Anne Frank House reinvest a lot of that money in education, not just in this country, certainly in the UK, in the in the UK, all over and the world, all, yeah. all, 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 all over all over the world. In fact, yeah. we were saying that the the people who run Anne Frank uh, House. They're not stuffy old shirts. It's quite, I don't know, radical, but there's certainly something in this building, isn't it, that, that goes out and challenges and it meets hatred head on. It doesn't wait for it. This, you know, and it's not just anti-Semitism. I know a lot of the work done here about racism, about migration, LGBT issues, you know, much of it starts here in this building. The, the staff here are very, very committed um, to liberal ideals about about the Netherlands and its people, and also about being in Europe and education. So it's not just about, although quite central, it's not just about Anne Frank, is it? Something what happens in here is is, is an impressive centre for education and resources for people. Well, it is, um, but we're also ob obliged to do so. Um, our organisation, the museum, the yeah. Frank House, was founded by the the only survivor. Uh, of the people who were hiding in the house, um, the father of Anne Frank, Otto Frank, he yeah. founded this organization and the museum. And immediately, uh, when founding it, he told like this: this shouldn't be like the museum, like the other ones. We we have this educational task to uh, to educate the people, the students, the children. Uh, because that is the only way to really prevent of a Holocaust ever happening again. He gave us the mission for the for the for the museum that uh, we should educate on on topics of anti-discrimination, human rights, uh, democratic values uh, should be in the core of our organization. And there comes, of course, our educational mission and our educational department. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's what we try to translate in a world uh, which well, pretty much differs from the world in the 50s when, yes. when this mission statement was, was launched. But I think we still have the obligation to, 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 to do what he, what he <laughs> demanded us to do, to do because the, um, um, the, the problems of anti-Semitism, uh, racism, um, attacks on democratic society, um, attacks on human rights still are uh, very visible in 2018. That was very interesting. Uh, now to a slightly lighter part of uh, the podcast, we're going to read out some interesting uh, hate mail we've received. Uh, Martin, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's quite 
I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I, I quite enjoy this. Oh, um, it's a favourite bit of my job, this, getting reading. <laughs> and obviously, like, monitoring our online stuff every day, this stuff's coming in um, across Twitter, Facebook, email, but very often we also get the pleasure of receiving things in the mail, too. So I've got Old one school. here. I've got one here, which it's hard to describe on an audio-only situation because there's a really key element to it, but I'm going to start by reading the note, um, which is on lovely flowery paper. Uh, Please accept this contribution to dry your effing bigoted eyes with, exclamation. Now feel free to F right off, kiss kiss. <laughs> and containing the envelope as well is what can only be accurately described as tissue paper, which is also £20 notes. And they look very realistic, in fact. And they have yeah. big words saying money across and are the delightful queen adorning them as well. This is counterfeit goods, if I'm perfectly <laughs> honest. They're printed in colour, too. But unfortunately, I can't put these towards our online fundraising target, which is a shame. No, we tried. Um, what always fascinates me about the hate mail that's posted in is usually they'll do something interesting with our address, and yet it still gets here. So I've got two little ones here. The one is just hope not hate. And then this is the address, by the way. Hope not hate. Loathe your country, your culture, your history. This is the organisation for you. P.O. Box 1084. And then the other one is uh, from I am a commie. uh, The address is commies are us at unison. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful penmanship, I must say. Oh, that's a really lovely hand. On the back it says, hope not hate, nutty as a fruitcake. I mean, you have to feel... (laughs) You have to feel something about the fact that they took the time to send it. I mean, who writes letters now? You called it f- uh, hate mail. I call it fan mail. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. Um, what have you got, Sophia? Um, well, I have an interesting address, too. Um, hope not hate, a.k.a. brainwashed liberal thinking, not rational common sense. So this is on the envelope. And if I turn it, I have give our regards to Mr. Soros, but tell him to stop interfering in Western democratic politics. Hmm. And the envelope is empty. Oh, no, no donation. I mean, no hate mail is complete without a reference to George Soros. I believe that's a, <laughs> a recurring theme. Here's another one um, from... I'm not going to read out his email address. That's that's not right, is it? <laughs> You're a bunch dim-witted dupes of a globalist communist revolution. Get job, then go get a life. Yeah. I mean, they have to be fair. I mean, they do tend to take the time to write in, but they don't take the time to check their grammar, <laughs> generally speaking. I've got a good one here. I won't read it all because it is... 23 pages long. Wow. Um, this has a great backstory, though, doesn't it? This does. Uh, many of you may have seen or may not. There's this interesting far-right guy called Peter Sweden who's somewhat obsessed with us. Um, we did an expose on him, and uh, he's been doing a lot of kind of alt-righty sort of stuff or alt-light sort of stuff for a few years. Didn't he accuse us of poisoning his dog? Is that the one? He did. He accused us of poisoning his dog in or in in Sweden all the way from here. Um, but <laughs> but um, his, his father wrote us a long, long letter, which I actually think could be classed as a poem. And you'll see why. I'm not going to read, obviously, all 20-odd pages here, but I'll read you the first few lines, and because it has this repetitive kind of verse structure. So um, it goes, It's really sad that you call yourself hope, not hate, but you are using lies and factual cherry-picking to paint a completely untrue picture about me and my business. Is this hope? No, this is hate. And then he goes on like this, and so then each page, it does the same thing. This is why I think both left and right is so bad. No hope, just hate. When I was young and had no money and the only one and only had bread, I gave half of it to a friend. That is hope, not hate. And he goes through, and this goes on for pages and pages. I wish we could publish it, but I think we'd end up going to court. Um, uh, he turns around and he goes, to, uh, to just use the one lower court ruling, oh, this, uh, this is, yeah, to, we talked about his court cases that he'd been involved in. He turns around and he goes, that is hate, no hope, just hate, 
you know it. Uh, and it really is the repetitive structure. I think it's really, it's one of the greatest poems I've ever read. He obviously spent some time on it. Oh, yeah, it's huge. Absolutely. Dear, oh, dear. And I believe he's, he's a regular uh, contributor to your mentions as well on Twitter, isn't he? Peter oh, yeah. Sweden's dad. Oh, Peter Sweden writes all the, like, Peter Sweden writes more than he than Peter Sweden does now. He's got right involved. So, I mean, that's just a, a tiny, tiny fraction of the sort of stuff we get. So we thought we'd start with that. I'm sure this will become a popular segment um, as we get so much of it. We haven't even delved into the masses we get on social media or we get into our inboxes. So we'll start pulling through that as well. If you've got any hate mail for us, we'd love to read it. We always enjoy it. So if you're on the far right and having a little listen, please subscribe. And then also send us some of your latest hate mail and we'll promise to read it out for you if it's if it's any good. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast, uh, which we would love you to do. Please do over at hopenothate.org.uk forward slash podcast. Um, it's available on all your favorite podcast uh, applications. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We'll put the links to our social media handles um, in the episode notes. As it's the local elections coming up on May the 3rd, for any... Uh, registered voters out there please make sure you go and and get your vote cast um and we look forward to talking to you next time